Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. Michael Beirut is one of the most influential graphic designers working today, and I can guarantee you that even if you don't know his name, you have seen some of his work. He was part of the team that designed the current iteration of the MasterCard logo, and they put together Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign logo. And if you're a sports fan, particularly a college football fan, you likely recognize the logo he helped create for the Big Ten Conference. And as someone who dabbles in graphic and logo design myself, I can attest that whether you're designing for a presidential candidate or just your buddy, logos can make a critic out of almost anyone. And sermons do too, don't they? As people who engage in the work of preaching, teaching, and communication, we receive feedback all the time. And and my hope and prayer is that you are encouraged regularly. But of course, the very nature of the things that we're called to talk about and discuss and think about and preach about, even if we're doing a great job, we're going to receive feedback and some of it is going to be negative. Now, sometimes that feedback is legitimate and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not, and we probably need a full episode in the future about how to discern what is helpful and unhelpful feedback. But today, we're going to be talking about how to respond to those who are offering us negative feedback. And as a guide, we're going to use Michael Beirut's experience with redesigning that Big Ten Conference logo, because on an episode of the amazing 99% Invisible podcast, he shared an example of how he responded when he encountered critical and even angry feedback. I think his response was, exceptional and it offers us a potential framework for formulating our own responses. So here's what he said he would write back whenever he got one of those uh, angry or critical emails. It's always disappointing to have worked hard on something and to know that people don't like it. I can only hope that you over time come to at least get used to it, ideally come to like it as much as we do, or at the very least not have it bother you quite as much. But I know that the team and the conference values the strong feelings you have about them. And as a fellow fan, that's the thing we all really focus on. He said that this type of response led about two-thirds of the angry emailers to write back and say that perhaps they'd gone a little overboard. So what makes this such a great response to negative feedback? What allows it to disarm some of the, the anger that's being received and create a bridge between the person who has created some work and someone who has reacted negatively to it? Well, let's break it down. First, it acknowledges that the feedback has been heard. It's critical at the outset to let the other person know that their voice has been heard and that it matters. For some, this is actually enough. Sometimes all it takes is to say, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me. It's easy to say, nice sermon preacher, on the way out the door, whether we mean it or not, or to just shake hands or even to leave without saying anything. So if someone goes out of their way to offer negative feedback, chances are good that they're doing so because a nerve has been touched. Now, sure, some people may just like drama or are naturally combative folks, but you likely know who they are and you know to receive their feedback through a specific lens. But in most other cases, someone is saying something because it's important to them that you hear and acknowledge what they're saying. They want to know that their feelings are being considered. Beirut takes it a step even further by expressing disappointment in response to the feedback. This signals that the feedback has not just been heard, but it's had an impact, even if it doesn't change the ultimate outcome. 
Next, it demonstrates that the decisions involved were intentional. In the first sentence of his response, Michael Beirut talks about how hard they worked on the new logo. It wasn't something that was thrown together at the last minute. There was time, thought, and effort put into the entire design. The same is hopefully true of your sermons and lessons. The scriptures you choose, the stories you told, the main points, and the calls to action are hopefully all carefully considered. Now, obviously, if someone's responding to a joke or a statement you made while riffing or chasing a rabbit tail, that's a different story. But it might not be a bad idea to at least give a small window into how you prepare your sermons. You may not be able to get them to fully understand or agree with your perspective, but if you can share that your process includes prayer and research and careful consideration, it may help them see that you're not intentionally trying to make them mad or just saying the first thing that pops in your head. Next, it's realistic about the next steps. In the second part of his response, Beirut expresses the hope that the critics' feelings will change, even if only a little bit. This is a smart approach because at the end of the day, they are not going to ditch the new logo in response to a few angry emails. Now, sometimes we as ministry leaders can dangle false hope if we're people pleasers or conflict avoiders or just trying to get out of a conversation quickly. In leadership situations, we shouldn't tell someone that we'll reconsider a decision or see what I can do if we know that we can't or ultimately won't. And when it comes to sermons and issues of biblical interpretation and application, we should always have an open mind to hear other people's points of view, but we should also be true to our convictions and where we believe the Holy Spirit has led us. Next, it reinforces the positive aspects of the critic's behavior. When Michael Beirut notified the Big Ten Conference that he was receiving critical and even angry emails, they responded with a perspective that he hadn't initially considered. The passion that fuels the criticism is the same passion that fuels their loyalty. Churches without any conflict and preachers that never receive negative feedback of any kind may feel like they've created a culture of unity, but they actually may be facing a landscape of apathy. You want your community to care enough about what you're doing and saying that it inspires a response. And while we shouldn't be intentionally seeking out toes to stomp on, preaching the gospel can naturally lead to tension or conflict as it challenges the ways of the world in the sinful nature we all live with. Beirut's response subtly yet effectively reinforces the critic's passion without necessarily approving of its specific expression. We need to learn how to reinforce and redirect passion in a way that is helpful moving forward, and we should make clear that feedback is always welcome, even if those who offer feedback don't always get what they want. Finally, it offers a space for unity. Beirut closes by identifying common ground with the fan who writes in. He isn't just some designer they've hired off the street, but he is a fan too. He shares similar feelings of passion and loyalty, even if it's led to a different conclusion or expression. So much of church politics and politics in general devolve into us versus them. We group ourselves based on our opinions or perspectives on certain issues. However, I know that you know this, but it's so important to say that's not the only way to organize ourselves. We can also rally around the mission of the church. So in the context of ministry, explicitly acknowledge that we're all trying to best understand God and be faithful to the mission of the church. This provides us an opportunity to respect where someone else is coming from without necessarily agreeing with them. And we're going to close it out with one final bonus tip. And this is less about how to respond to someone else and more about how to respond to ourselves when we find ourselves focusing on negative feedback and blowing it out of proportion. No doubt we have all experienced this at one time or another. You preach a sermon that's well received by the vast majority of your congregation, but you find yourself lying in bed awake at night remembering the words of the one or two people that didn't like it. 
United Methodist Bishop Ken Carter, and a former guest on this podcast, says that when he needs to keep negative feedback in perspective, he just remembers the old church pictorial directory. Everyone has a place, but no one gets a full page. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.